the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I would like to welcome you to another episode of Let Us Reason. I am your host, Al Fadi, and um, uh, if uh, you're joining us for the first time, we are delighted uh, to have you with us today. Uh, you can always uh, reach out to me by email at CRAM Ministries, C-I-R-A, and the word ministries in plural, CRAM Ministries at gmail.com. And you can always uh, go back to listen to all of our uh, previous episodes that are archived at uh, soundcloud.com. And uh, once you get to soundcloud.com, you can search for Let Us Reason. You'll see our symbol, basically, which has a a photo of a cross and a minaret of a mosque. So uh, we welcome uh, welcome you, and we would like to uh, also encourage you to listen to our um, previous archived shows and we welcome also any comments or suggestions you may have. Please share those things specifically with our Muslim friends in hope that the Lord will um, open their heart, uh, hearts and eyes uh, to the truth of uh, what he has done for them. Speaking of that, uh, we've been going through a series in the last couple of weeks related to sin and salvation and obviously our need for a Savior. And um, last week, I closed the episode by talking about um, the fact that Islam does teach the need for a, an intercessor. And in this case, of course, Muslims are not going to consider Jesus to be their intercessor, but it's obviously it's Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, who is considered to be the intercessor, despite the fact that Islam teaches that Jesus is uh, uh, basically a perfect person. Uh, he was sinless, born sinless, lived sinless, ascended to heaven sinless. Coming back sinless, even on Judgment Day, he will remain the way he is. But somehow, uh, amazingly, uh, the traditions of Islam do not teach that Jesus is the person who qualifies to be their intercessor. And therefore, we showed that a Muslim, despite the fact that he is reliant on his good deeds, on his faith and obedience, all of these do not give him any, uh, basically, sense of salvation. He's still dependent on an agent for salvation. In this case, it's the Prophet of Islam. And this shows also that there is no assurance whatsoever because in one of the traditions it says that the Prophet of Islam will appeal before God that his people will enter into paradise or heaven and God will ask him to go and take him out of the hellfire, which tells me that Muslims will start there first before they are rescued. And in fact, in another tradition it says that before they enter into heaven, they still have to walk over what is called the straight path, which according to the teaching of Islam, this is kind of like a really a very thin thread, literally a thread, like a bridge-like, but it's a thread that is laid before hell, and people have to walk over it, and some people will make it, some people will stumble and get burned a little bit, you know, 
and others will fall in there, maybe temporarily as a purgatory kind of a thing, or eternally in the hellfire. None of this, of course, gives you any sense of assurance, especially if you're a follower of Islam. I lived all of my life uh, before knowing Christ as a Muslim, very devout, knowing all of these things. But I realized at that time that this is the only hope I have. I was born a Muslim, I live a Muslim, and therefore I cannot really complain, per se. Never knew that there is um, uh, something called uh, an assurance of salvation that Jesus himself came to do for me on the cross, and it's by faith that I am saved by the grace of God, not by my works, basically. Now, today, we are going to shed some light on the sense uh, of sin and salvation and give you a glimpse of where this assurance comes from if you are a Muslim person. And unfortunately, of course, it is only as a martyr that you have this sense of assurance. Obviously, I'm not here promoting uh, this idea, but all I'm saying is that's the only time the Quran or the traditions of Islam talk about assurance of salvation for a person. Simply, of course, today there is a lot of opinions about how does that might work. I mean, this idea of uh, people uh, killing themselves and blowing themselves up of suicide bombers. I lived all of my life believing suicide is prohibited in Islam. So there is a big question mark here. Who, who tells you that suicide that was prohibited all of a sudden it is okay now? So I'm not so sure really how these misled young men who are willing to sacrifice their life and their body uh, are really getting this sense of assurance from a human being like them who's telling them that it's okay to do. We have a problem, and uh, this is why uh, it's another example of the lack of assurance and people desperately looking for a way to ensure that they are going to paradise. Unfortunately, of course, the work has been laid out already for us. Jesus himself already is our martyr. He died on the cross. He came to die on the cross for our salvation. And therefore, let us consider what is sure— versus what is unsure. Now, let's look at a tradition uh, by the Prophet of Islam related to the rewards a martyr will get. It says this. This one is narrated by um, Al-Miqdam, and uh, it is found in something called Mishkat Al-Masabih. Mishkat Al-Masabih basically is a collection of hadith traditions, and this one is number 3,834. 3,834, this is what this tradition says. Allah's Messenger said, the martyr receives six good things from from Allah. So the, the one who dies as a martyr will receive six good things from God. He is forgiven at the first shedding of his blood, which means that he wasn't forgiven before that, just like any Muslim, but at the shed of his blood, he is now forgiven. All right? Brothers and sisters, we are forgiven by the blood of Christ if we believe in his work on the cross. So this is number one. It's your work as a martyr that will save you, supposedly. So he is forgiven at the first shedding of his blood. Number two, he is shown his place in paradise, his abode in paradise. That's the second reward he gives. Third reward, he is preserved from the punishment in the grave. Now, you're going to say, what is this? Well, Islam teaches that people live on earth, then there is a transitional period in the grave where people might suffer punishment as a result of some of the bad deeds they've done. It's kind of like a a purification process, like a purgatory as well. 
And then there is the final uh, judgment and uh, the final eternal life, whether in hellfire or in heaven. And then, fourth thing, he is kept safe from the greatest terror, from basically uh, the uh, judgment day, if you wish. All right, so which, which obviously the Quran is filled with imagery about how terrorizing that day might be to, uh, to people. And you know what? Um, uh, we have the, uh, uh, basically the Bible in the book of Revelations talks about things that will happen in the end times that will be terrifying to people as well. But we at least, biblically speaking, know that if we are saved, the Lord will protect us from all of that. But if we're not saved, then unfortunately we're leaving ourselves open for whatever might happen as a result of our disbelief. Then another reward, he has placed on his head the crown of honor. Brothers and sisters, the crown of honor and glory is given to us by virtue of believing in Christ and serving in his army, in his kingdom, doing works to spread the good news to the world, basically, that doesn't know him. You don't need really to die to, uh, to kill yourself to do this. Jesus already died on your place, basically. And it, the, the tradition tells you a description of this. It's a ruby of which is better than the world and what it contains. And then we start getting to other things now. Other reward, he is married to 72 wives of the maids with large dark eyes, known as the Hodes in Islam, basically. The virgins, there you go. That's where we get the tradition from. And finally, the final reward, he is made intercessor for 70 of his relatives. So now, as a martyr, you have the right now to also intercede on behalf of your relatives. What we just read last week, that the Prophet of Islam is the intercessor on behalf of Muslims. That tells me now that that's not enough. So the deeper you dig into the doctrine of salvation and doctrine of sin in Islam, the more you uncover and unearth things like this that are very troubling, showing you basically that you are never assured or guaranteed anything for that matter. This, by the way, uh, tradition uh, is found in the Termidhi and Ibn Majah uh, collections as well. Now, Let's get to, okay, so the ultimate reward for a Muslim is to get to paradise, which is the highest level of heaven, all right, especially for the martyrs. But how is paradise like in Islam? Well, let's take a glimpse at that. In one of those traditions in the same collection, Mishkat al-Masabih, basically, number 5,648, 5648, 5,648 says this, narrated by Abu uh, uh, Said basically he said this Allah's messenger said the lowliest of inhabitants of paradise will be he who has 80,000 servants 72 wives who die whether young or old will come into paradise aged 30 and never grow older when a believer in paradise wishes for a child its conception, delivery, and growth to full age will be accomplished in a moment as he wishes. I mean, did you read anything in here, by the way, or hear me say anything about a restored relationship with God being in the presence of the Lord? It's all about material thing here. 
and mainly marriage is included here, and uh, obviously with that comes sexual pleasure. Let's read one more. In another tradition, the same collection, number 3,834, it says, The martyr is married to 72 wives of the maiden with large dark eyes and is made intercessor for 70 of his relatives. We just read this earlier. So these are the rewards, basically. So which tells me, really, literally, that the heaven is a carnal place for a Muslim person. This is in the presence of the holy God. I ask my Muslim people this question. Can you do any of these things that are just listed in here in the presence of an earthly king, in his own palace, away from his sight, just in the palace itself? I can assure you the answer would be no, because you are dishonoring the king by doing such a thing. But yet it's okay to dishonor the king of kings and lord of lords. I mean, we need to ask ourselves these questions, my friends here. We need to ask these questions. Otherwise, we are doomed to live a big lie, basically, and get ourselves separated from God for all of eternity. And there are no second chances. That's, that's a promise, by the way. There are no second chances. It was appointed for man to live once uh, and to, to die, basically, and then judgment. So you live and die, basically. I mean, death means that you lived once, basically. That's what I was trying to say. And after that is judgment. Let's look at another, uh, basically, reference to this carnality. This one is in the Quran itself, in chapter 44, verse 51. As to the righteous, they will be in a position of security. Verse 52, among gardens and springs. Verse 53, dressed in fine silk and in rich brocade. They will face each other. You're not going to face God. You're going to face each other, right? Verse 54, so, and we shall join them to companions with beautiful, big, unlustrous eyes. Is this really what we are aiming for? In fact, if you can watch some of the interviews with now, basically, uh, or soon to be, I should say, um, suicide bombers, you'll hear him talking about they cannot wait to meet their 72 virgins. Is that what we are basically hoping for in paradise? Verse 55 there can they call for every kind of fruit in peace and security. Once again, it's all about material things. Well, what does Christianity teach? What does the Bible teach about the heaven? Here's what it teaches, for instance. Philippians 1.23 But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul was struggling. Should I stay on earth and serve? Or if it is my time to die or be martyred, isn't it better for me to be with Christ? He's torn between the calling of serving or the desire really to just be immediately with Christ, with our Lord. For absent from the body is present with the Lord. That's pretty much what the Bible teaches. It is about the Lord. It's always about the Lord. He is the center of everything in our life. It's not about us. It's not about material thing. First John chapter 3, verse 2 said this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it hasn't appeared as yet what we will be, how we're going to look, basically. 
we know that when he appears, that's our Lord Jesus Christ, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. This is what heaven is about. It's about the Lord being with him. And yes, he may appoint us to do things according to the scripture, do things, be judges, be rulers. But this isn't why we are aiming towards heaven. We're aiming to be in heaven, to be in the presence of the Prince of Peace, the presence of a glorious God who died on the cross for us to give us this passage, rite of passage, if you wish, to get there. So in contrast, basically, the Christian salvation involves both forensic justification, legality, no longer debtors, our debt has been paid for, and a spiritual renewal, regeneration, and a life of sanctification and purification, and finally, a literal fellowship with God in heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. Sin in Christianity, for instance, is not really classified as major sins and minor sins, as I used to believe in Islam. There is no difference in God's perspective between one sin and two sins, or between this sin and that sin. Sin is sin, basically. Let's see. Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. The warning that God gave to Adam and Eve, and says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Immediately you'll die. How? By being separate from me, because once you're separated from me, you're dead. You are as good as dead outside the sphere of God because he's the giver of life. You're separated from God, you die. He died spiritually and then later died physically. And the Bible confirms that we too inherited the same thing. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, because the wages of sin are death, Adam died, right? And so death spread to all men, because why? All sin. Here is the conclusion from this passage in Romans 5.12. Adam sinned, death entered into humanity. We all die. Why? Because we are all sinners. The conclusion, we inherited that sin from Adam. Very simple equation. It doesn't require a brain surgeon to figure that out. Find me a single person who is still alive since creation. If you can find me just one person, in fact, our Lord Jesus Christ who is the only one who is alive in heaven. He's the only one that even have to go through death as well and resurrect from that to conquer death. Now, some of you might tell me, you know, well, what about Enoch and what about Elijah? Well, show me what it says that they're alive right now. I mean, we know they were raptured and taken, but I'm saying I go by the data that I have in the Bible. The only one I know for sure is alive and interceding for me is our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So we have to really compare and contrast what the data is given us in teachings in the Quran, for instance, and the Hadith and Islamic sources versus what the Bible that came before all of that is teaching us. The Bible, as I said, doesn't distinguish between a minor sin or a major sin or 
This sin is okay, but that sin is not okay. Sin destroyed the relationship that we have with God, and thus man had to be thrown out of God's presence. Habakkuk 1.13, for instance. Because God's eyes are pure, God cannot be in the presence of sin. James 2.10 tells us, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, in one of the law, just transgress in one of the law, he has become guilty of what? Of all the law. One sin is enough. In fact, what did Adam do? All he did is disobeyed a command from God. Where is he today? He is out of paradise. Why didn't he come back if God really forgave him? What about his descendants? Why didn't they come back? I mean, we have to ask ourselves all these questions, brothers and sisters. Romans 3.23 tells us this. For all, not some, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot really find our way back to the glory of God and the righteous presence of God, who is just and holy, without Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. No one comes to God except by me. This is the fix. I'm going to use a software, basically, language. The patch that we send to fix a software problem Jesus Christ is much more precious than this. He is the only one that can fix our problem and bring us back to not falling from the glory of God anymore. Leviticus 11.45 says this, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is what expected of us, by the way, as believers. 1 Peter 1.16 repeated the same thing. We ought to be holy for what? God is holy, and the only way we can be holy is by the power of God and His Holy Spirit sanctifying us, and complete holiness and glorification will happen when we meet God face to face. Habakkuk 1.13 said this, chapter 1, verse 13, For God cannot look upon sin. This is powerful, by the way. If God cannot look upon sin, okay, why would God look at your bad deeds on Judgment Day on a scale? If He doesn't even look at sin, why would He look at your bad deeds all Judgment Day basically looking at one sinner after another. This goes against what the Bible teaches. And not only that, not only God doesn't look at your sin, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, a filthy rag. If our good deeds are like filthy rags, why would God even look at those? And you're, asking, you're telling me God is going to look even at your bad deeds? I mean, you have to really wonder if what the Bible is teaching uh, is uh, uh, in contrast to what the Quran that came 600 years later is teaching. I mean, it's a, it's a simple question we have to ask ourselves. In Psalm 77, verse 13, or 99, verse 9, God is pure and holy. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, sin separates us from God. This is why. We only have hope on the cross and the blood of Jesus. He's the only one who can save us. In Genesis 3.15, the promise was given, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the servant, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, singular. He shall bruise your head. That's our Lord Jesus Christ, promise of his coming. And you shall bruise his heel and Leviticus 17:11 says for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you God has given us life in the blood that's why only without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin as Hebrews 9:22 says 
This is my invitation to you, my brothers and sisters, and this is my invitation to all of you who are listening here, especially my Muslim friends. Without the shedding of the blood of our precious Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, there is no hope for salvation. You can try all you want. It is futile. You have no assurance whatsoever if you depend on yourself and your works. But the work of the cross is guaranteed and assured. That's why today I am a follower of Christ, and that's my invitation to you as well. Thank you for joining us in another episode of Let Us Reason. I'm your host, Al-Fadi. You can always get in touch with me by sending me an email at ministries at gmail.com. Yet, once again, it's Sira, C-I-R-A, the word ministries in plural, at gmail.com. And you can always visit uh, our archive at soundclouds.com and search for Let Us Reason. Until we meet again, have a blessed week. J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.